So let me just break down where I plan to go with this, okay? When it comes to the book of Ephesians, this is one of my favorite books. This is the book that I'm most familiar with. This is the book that I think the Lord has taken me the deepest into. Um, so what I'm going to do is we're going to go through the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 6, um, probably within the next week or two. We'll finish the book. We're going to go back and we're actually going to trace um, out different ideas, different keywords, different patterns, different connections to Jesus. And we're going to trace it throughout the book of Ephesians and even look beyond the book of Ephesians. Okay. So we're going to do that. This, this might take a month. This might take two months. Essentially, I'm going to take you through my, my Bible workouts study program. So if you're someone who has no idea what this ministry is about, I have a free Bible study program, and it's called Bible Workouts. It's at AboveReproachMinistry.com, and the link is in my TikTok bio. It's in the YouTube description below. We're going to get to that, but we got to get through Ephesians. We'll just go one time through. So you get a big picture of what the letter's about. Then we'll go back and we'll piece it together in the coming weeks, all right? We'll go really deep. We're going to go super deep. But for now, we're just going to read through the book of Ephesians. I'm going to try not to go down these rabbit holes that I think would be unhelpful for now. And we'll save those for later. But I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we're going to start, obviously. And uh, I'm just going to read the whole chapter and then we'll break it down, all right? It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Now, here's what I want you to do, okay? I'm going to back it up to verse 3. I'm going to ask you guys to work with me here, do a little kind of workshop. And what I want you to do is notice or circle in your Bible, if you have your Bibles open, <clears throat> highlight, notice, circle, take note of, whatever you have to do, any time you see the phrase, in Christ, or in Jesus, or in Him, okay, take very um, careful notice of those things, and I, I encourage you to open your Bibles and circle these things, because this is what's going to frame up the entire letter to the Ephesians, is that we are in Christ. And there's variations of that word and idea, or that phrase and idea. In Christ, in Him, in Jesus, in the Beloved. Okay, so take note of that. Watch. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. Another variation of the phrase, in Christ, in Him. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Okay, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand uh, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, being Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's how Paul opens this letter to the Ephesian community. That's how he opens this letter. This is just chapter one. My goodness. My goodness. So what we're going to do is go back. We're going to piece this together. And what we're going to see in these first 14 verses is essentially everything that we as believers have in Christ. You have this. It's not like you get this eventually, or I hope I'll get there one day. As a believer, you have this currently, present tense now, through your faith by God's grace. Now, if you're not a believer, this is available to you, just as much as it's available to us. Anyone can have this through faith in Jesus. Not through mindless, you know, blind faith, but by believing and trusting in the clear historical message of Christ. The gospel. That's where blessing comes from. So let's back it up to verse 1 and we'll unpack what you might call the identity or the condition or the blessing of the believer. It says Paul. This is how he opens. He's letting us know who is writing this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, what I love is that Paul opens with, hey, me, you know me, Apostle Paul, Kind of planted the church in Ephesus, stayed there 18 months with you guys. I'm only an apostle of Jesus, an ambassador of the kingdom, by the will of God. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In other words, I am not what I am by my own efforts. I am not what I am by my own achievements and striving and straining and knowledge and intellect. I am what I am that is good, right, by the grace of God. I am a product of of God's grace. So Paul's going to let us know right off the bat that what he is as an apostle, as someone who lays the foundation of the church alongside the rest of the apostles, as someone who's commissioned to be an ambassador of the kingdom, he says, I am just a servant and an apostle of Jesus because God willed it, because God's grace enabled it. To the saints who are in Ephesus, now he's addressing the audience. To the saints who are in the city of Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, you might be tempted to fly right by this and go, give me the good stuff. Well, you might say Paul's introduction is actually going to lead into the good stuff. Because you're going to see a lot of the key ideas he's going to unpack later in the letter. You're going to see that in seed form in the earlier chapters. So... In this initial greeting, Paul's already setting us up to see, look, he's talking to saints, called out ones, holy ones, 
who are made righteous, who are made holy and blameless and forgiven of all sin, Christians who are living in Ephesus. That's a very real reality, very real thing happening. They're in the city of Ephesus, which is a, a city that's steeped in sin, a city that's known for its, um, uh, you might say, mystical arts and worship of the, of the, the goddess Artemis and all kinds of pagan ritualistic things going on in this city. It's quite a hub for darkness. And you have Christians who are strategically positioned by God in this place of darkness. He called them out. God called these people out of Ephesus in terms of spiritually, right? They're spiritually redeemed, reconciled back to God, pulled out of the darkness. And then they're sent back in as agents of the light into Ephesus, okay? But they're still living in Ephesus. But here's what they're living as. They're living as faithful saints in Christ. So what we need to understand is that as believers, we also live in a very pagan society. We live in a very strong, ungodly, uh, godless world and culture. There's no way of getting around that. Um, but what we can understand even more so is that I am positioned strategically in Christ. And so though it is a very real thing that I belong to a, a pagan culture that's godless and anti-Jesus, I am mainly and eternally, firstly, in Christ, which enables me to be an effective witness in my city, in my community. You might say in the hierarchy of, you know, what is more important for me. I am firstly spiritually in Christ. I'm positioned in the person and work of Christ. Then secondly, I am where I am geographically. I am in whatever city, state, nation that I live in. But that's not primary. What's primary is that I belong to Christ and I live like that as a faithful saint wherever God sends me or plants me. So what God does is he's really strategic. Okay, you gotta, you gotta understand this. God strategically places his people in areas of darkness that they would be agents of light. But first, he calls them out of the darkness to be filled with the light of Christ, transformed, given a new nature, so that they're capable of actually dispelling the darkness with the truth and with the love of Christ. But first, you have to understand, we have to be redeemed back to God so we can be sent back into those places that are most familiar to us. For them, it's Ephesus. So again, you might say, like, let, let's picture the people in Ephesus. They're, they're, um, they're in the city. That's a very real thing going on for them. They're geographically positioned in the city of Ephesus. You might say, like, as believers, uh, what's even more true is that they're shielded by this invisible bubble shield, you might say, because I'm a nerd. An invisible bubble shield, yeah, you might say, is being in Christ, represents all that we have in Jesus. So though I am in a very real dark pagan society that's anti-God and, and anti-Jesus and hates the truth, though that's very true, what is more true because it's eternally true is that I am positioned in Jesus by his grace. That doesn't change no matter where you put me, okay? That doesn't change no matter where uh, you put me on the planet, no matter where you put me um, in my community, in my neighborhood. That's not going to change. That's the beauty of what it means to be a believer is my identity doesn't change with my location. My identity doesn't change with, you know, where I am. So I want you to see as uh, the believers, I know this is a lot at, up front, but it's going to make more sense as we move on. 
the believers here have the temptation to give into um, the, the sinful culture they live in. They're tempted to just give in and conform to the society. They're tempted to live like everyone else in Ephesus that lives godless. But they're not. They're not living like that. They're choosing to live as faithful saints in Christ Jesus. Which also tells me that my culture, my society, the, the place I live in, has no uh, ultimate determination on how I live. There can be an influence and an effect, but ultimately how I live doesn't have to be shaped by the culture I live in or the place that I find myself in. I can always live as faithful in Christ. That doesn't have to change. And they're living faithfully. Paul's calling them out and saying, great job, guys. You're doing it. You're in Ephesus, but you're living like you are in Jesus while you're living in Ephesus. Now, this sounds a lot like in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer. Let me take you here, actually, because it seems like a good place to go. Jesus says, I've given them, referring to those who trust in him, I've given them your word, Father. He's praying this as the, as the great high priest that we need. It's a mediation kind of prayer. He says, the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just like I'm not of the world. You should expect people to come against you when you represent the truth, and they are anti-truth, anti-God. They hate the truth. You should expect them to come against you. Now, Jesus goes on and says, Father, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them from getting sucked into the ways of this world, but help them to stay in this world as faithful representatives, right? That's the idea here, is we're called to go and confront culture with truth. We're called to go and represent Jesus in whatever sphere of influence God has given us. I shouldn't run because I'm scared of the dark. I should actually know the one who I represent so that I shine his light brighter. But I need to know him to actually shine in the midst of, you know, your, your kind of Ephesus. Where do you live? I don't know. But these people are living in a pretty strongly sinful pagan society that's steeped in ritualistic religion. So grace to you and peace from God. Our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he opens his letter by saying, hey, it's me. I, I'm just an apostle by God's will. Hey, what's up, guys? Heard you're faithful. Killing it. Keep living faithfully as saints. Grace to you and peace from God. God extends his grace, undeserved, unearned, unmerited kindness and favor and blessing, you might say. Giving us what we don't deserve, the good things we don't deserve. And then peace also comes from God. Peace comes from God. Um, and you're going to see this heavily unpacked in chapter 2 when Paul explains how Jew and Gentile have been made one in Christ and we've been given not just peace with each other, but primarily peace with God through Jesus. Through Jesus. Okay, we're given peace as a free gift. The king has brought his terms of peace. And you can accept those terms of peace or you can be wiped out when he comes back. You can be wiped out with all the enemies who are opposed to his kingdom and his ways. Your choice. 
But all I'm saying is there's grace and peace from God available to all, but it's only experienced by some, right? It's only received by some. You got to understand this. Grace and peace aren't the, aren't the reality for every person on the planet. They're the reality for those who are in Jesus. And these are very specific blessings that Paul intends to unpack in, in, in quite a bit of detail. And this flows from God. Notice, grace and peace don't come from any other source. The grace to live life, the favor of God, the peace that I need in life, that starts with peace with God, that doesn't come from anyone or anything else. No one else can distribute that because no one else has the power to grant that. No one else has the authority to make me right with God. No one else has the authority to declare my life covered in the favor of our Creator. That's, that's God's rightful authority and you know, position. He's, he alone has that, okay? Now we get to the good stuff. My goodness. My goodness. That was just the introduction. And Paul's going to unpack this so good. So good. Watch. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father. He breaks out into praise, guys. Did he forget he was writing to an audience? No. He wants to catch them up in the praise too. So watch what Paul does. He says, Oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. He has blessed us. As those who are, you know, Christians, we are blessed in Jesus. What are we blessed with? Well, with every spiritual blessing. Every material blessing? No. Every worldly temporary blessing? No. Health, money, prosperity in terms of, you know, getting through life and having everyone, everyone, having everyone like me and influence and fame? And no. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, verse 4 through 14 is going to unpack each of these blessings in detail. So he starts off in, in verse 3 by saying, look, we are blessed with what? Every spiritual blessing you could possibly imagine. There's none that are left out. God's not withholding anything from his children. This is the incredible thing about what God has done for us. We go from under the curse, separated from God, in the darkness, dead, without hope, godless, you know, enslaved to sin and the devil. We go from that to life and light and perfect blessing and fulfillment and contentment in Christ and having everything I could possibly have. God extends it. He doesn't like progressively give it to you. He says, everything my son has as the perfect resurrected human being, he grants to those who have faith. So here's what you have to understand. Paul is praising God, not just because God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but that is a reason he is blessing God. That is a reason to praise God. When you, when you praise God and you are, you're reminded of his goodness, don't forget, God, you have given me every possible spiritual blessing you could have bestowed upon me. Everything. Like, you didn't hold anything back. There's, there's nothing I lack. And you go, I don't believe it. I think the psalmist, David, specifically in Psalm 23, I think he was onto something. I think he was on to something. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not find myself wanting. 
I won't find myself discontent as if God is not enough for me. So you go, David, my man, why are you so content? You're saying, I shall not want anything. Well, David, you had a pretty crappy life for a number of years, you might say. He goes, well, the Lord is my shepherd. That's why I lack nothing. Not because of what I have in this world. Not because of how far I've, I've gone in life or how far I've climbed up the corporate ladder or how much money I have in the bank. None of those things. I don't want anything else and I don't lack because of who is my shepherd. He cares for me. Like he leads me in, in green pastures. He leads me beside streams of, of living water. Quiets my soul. He tells me when to lay down. And he'll force me into rest sometimes. He, he leads me into the valley. My shepherd is the reason I lack nothing. Not just because of what the shepherd does and gives, but because of the shepherd himself. This is what it means to be blessed. Let me take you to Romans chapter 3, 4. David <laughs> speaks of this in Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Well, it's to have your sins forgiven and to have your sins covered. Blessed is the person whom God will not count his sin. So blessing has to do with God looking at me favorably and extending forgiveness to me. That's what it means to be blessed. Can I say it to you in a seemingly harsh way at first, but it's not harsh? To be blessed has nothing to do with what this world can offer you. Blessing has nothing to do with what you can do for yourself. Blessing has nothing to do with what you can uh, gain or achieve in your own strength and with your own efforts. And it has nothing to do with how much money you have. Blessing has nothing to do with how healthy you are and how far you are in life. Blessing primarily, and I would say even only, has to do with knowing God as your father. And having a right relationship with him. If you don't have that, like if you're not in a right relationship with God, if you don't have a friendship with your creator, it doesn't matter how much you attain in this life. It amounts to nothing. Because you're going to find yourself just like every other human being standing before the judge, standing before the living God, giving an account of your life. And what will not matter in that moment is all that you gained in this life. It's going to amount to nothing. It's not going to follow you. It's not going to do you any good when it comes to getting into the kingdom of God or not. Blessing has more to do, and I think is only about having a friendship with God and knowing He's on my side. If I don't have that, I'm, I'm under a curse because of sin. I'm under the penalty of sin. But what Jesus does is He remove sin so I can come into a condition of blessing and I can have peace with God now. So Jesus restores our relationship with the Father. Now I am blessed. I'm not waiting for a reason to be blessed. I'm not waiting for more blessing. Anything else God does for me is just to reveal who he is to me, which is arguably better. Like knowing God personally is better than seeing God do things for me. And when God does things for people, for humanity, it is always with a deeper purpose of revealing his character and his heart to them. Because if God does things for me, 
but I don't know him through that. It only provides temporary aid. Well, what God does is he provides our temporary needs and gives us temporary help and does things in this life in temporary ways that bring about eternal fruit and eternal results. And the eternal result is that I would know him better, that I would see him clearer, that I have a deeper understanding of who my God is. So blessing is more about who you know. And if you don't know him, you cannot say you're blessed. Now, blessing can include being healthy. I can go, Lord, thank you for this blessing of health. Thank you for this blessing of, of financial support. Thank you for this blessing of direction and providing a mechanic to fix my car. What a blessing. But those blessings don't have anything to do with my condition of being blessed. I am, as a believer, my identity, my condition is that I am blessed at the core. That's my position in Christ. That's something that life can affect. That's something that my worldly circumstances cannot change. I am blessed in Christ. We define blessing as things God can give, things God can do, things God can like insert into our life. And I go, no, blessing is a state of existence. Blessing is a state of being. I am blessed or I am not. It has nothing to do with what you can do for yourself or what other people can do for you. It has everything to do with what God has done and extends to you freely as a gift. It has everything to do with him. So Paul prays as he goes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. It's a past tense finish thing. I'm not waiting for more blessing. If I do get any more blessings from God, like a maturity and growth and transformation and deeper insight and awareness of his love, even as I grow and mature, I am not becoming more blessed. Okay, you catch that, right? We, he has blessed us finally. It's finished. It's done. It's to the fullest extent. It's not partially. It's not mostly God blesses us kind of. It's God blesses to the uttermost and says, everything my son has won is yours. Everything I could possibly give you in the spiritual realms is yours. And this idea of spiritual blessing is key. Because again, the spiritual condition is what is really Paul's focus here. And from that, we can define blessing more accurately. Blessing is an immaterial spiritual thing only God can give. It could be joy. It could be peace. It could be hope. It could be growth. It could be purpose. It could be satisfaction. It could be love. These are immaterial spiritual fruits or blessings that are progressively unpacked and experienced as we walk in Christ. But they all have our name on it. As a believer, there are so many blessings stored up for you, not just in the heavens, but for the now. So many blessings that a lot of us aren't accessing. A lot of us are leaving unopened on the shelf because we're going after other things that will never satisfy. Because we're spending our lives running after things that are not even blessing. They actually rob us and remove from us, you know, 
uh, a state of joy and peace. So we need to define blessing appropriately. Blessing is in Christ. You do not have, you cannot, it's impossible to be blessed at the core without Jesus. You're either in Christ or you're not. You're either under the curse of sin because you're outside of Jesus or you're in Christ and you're free from sin. You either have access to every spiritual blessing or you have nothing spiritually outside of Jesus. You see the two extremes? This, this is really how what God is working with here. There's no middle ground. There's no, I'm kind of blessed. I'm almost to Jesus. No, you're either blessed or you're not. You're either in the light or the darkness. You're either dead or alive. At least when it comes to condition of the soul, there, there's no way to find middle ground. Pretty black or white. So in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. Every. Every. Like, I, Paul literally means what he's saying. You lack nothing. You're missing nothing. You're not looking around for something God forgot to give you. He's given you every spiritual blessing. And Paul's going to list out a few of them in the next 10 verses. Just a few. But this isn't the, you know, uh, an exhaustive list of every blessing Christ has given us. What I want you to know, Christian, is when you look in the mirror, because of who you know and who you belong to, God, you can look in the mirror and say, I am blessed. Like, I, I am. I have the favor of God on me. I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm marked with the Holy Spirit of God. I'm adopted. I'm His. I have peace with God. You, you don't need to wait for uh, another reason to feel blessed. Even if God gives you more blessings, that doesn't change the condition of who you are. It doesn't change your soul-level blessing. I am blessed in Christ with spiritual blessings. Every, not most, not some, not, you know, throughout the years, I'll get more. Every spiritual blessing has my name on it in the heavenly places. Now, this phrase, in the heavenly places, is going to be used a few more times throughout Ephesians. In the heavenly places refers to our position in Christ, but also refers to the method of blessing. Because I'm in Christ, seated with him in heavenly places, I have access to all the spiritual blessings Christ currently has as the perfect resurrected human. They're mine. Because he extends them to me as a free gift. I don't have to wait. I don't have to wait, guys, for any more reason to feel blessed, to feel happy. I have everything in my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I pulled this to my mouth and I didn't even drink it. Now, verse 4 is where we get into the specific kind of blessings we have, okay? Got to catch this. My goodness, you got to catch this. We are blessed. I'm not waiting to feel or be more blessed. When God saves a person, Hebrews says he saves to the uttermost. He brings a human being to the highest point of human existence. You can't climb any higher. You could never have gotten to the place God has brought you to. You could have never gotten there on your own. You never could have achieved your way up there and educated your way there. God brought you there by his grace. And you can't go any higher. You are in Christ, in relationship with the living God, alive, forgiven, redeemed, righteous. All this stuff, you are blessed. That's incredible. 
So as my life unfolds, as I progress in life, as I get a better job, as I get a family, as I get a house, as I see more financial support, whatever it is, as the ministry grows, that doesn't change my condition or my position in Christ. I'm still at the top of the mountain where he placed me when I got saved. I'm on the mountain with God. I'm not relying on Moses to go up there anymore. I'm there with him in Christ. So no matter whether life sucks or life is going great or I'm progressing in life, I'm still on the mountaintop, baby, because God has brought me here. And that doesn't change. Like We really got to get that. We really do. Verse 4 says, even as God chose us in him. Okay, in him. Remember when I said when you're reading Ephesians specifically, chapter 1, 3 through 14, when you're reading those 11 verses, pay very close attention to the in Christ or in him or in Jesus or in the beloved. All these variations of the same phrase essentially in Jesus okay pay very close attention because I'm in Christ I'm blessed because the Lord is my shepherd I'm blessed now God chose us in Christ how did God choose who would come into the kingdom and who wouldn't well this is where you get into the issue of Calvinism and predestination according to Calvinistic theology I don't believe in that I don't see it what I do see is that God chooses people in Christ. It's the method of choosing. So when God is going, who's coming into my kingdom? He chooses in Christ. Whoever, whosoever would believe in Christ. Well, they're chosen in Jesus. To be what? Well, we'll see that in a minute. Either way, we are chosen in Jesus. Because you have taken refuge in him. God deals with you a certain way. And you know how he deals with you? Well, he chooses you before the foundation of the world. And you see, there it is. God chose you against your will before you ever existed. Is that what the text says? Or does it say that God chose us in Christ before the world existed, that we should be holy and blameless before him? There's a category of people called us church believers god chose believers the church for what well to be holy and blameless before him is this talking about god choosing individual people before they exist no it's saying there's a category of people us the church believers and those who are in christ that's the church god says hey i'm going to choose that group of people to be holy and blameless it's really that simple it's really that simple. Rivael's here. Now it's game time. What's up, bro? So you see here, there's no reason to run to the Calvinistic theology in Ephesians 1.4. It's pretty simple. God chooses someone for a purpose. Well, the purpose is that they would be holy and blameless before him. Okay? The who is the question. And the who is those who would have faith in Jesus. God chose us in Christ. Right? Again, if I take refuge in Jesus, believe in the gospel... There's a certain way God deals with that category of people. He chooses them to be holy and blameless before him. Look at that. Look at that. It doesn't negate free will at all. Human free will is a real thing. And God divinely knows which category of people we end up in, but he doesn't decide that. But he does decide the consequences of our decision. What our decision results in. 
You and I can choose whether to believe in Christ or not. What we can't choose is the consequences of our decision. I don't decide what God does to me now that I believe in Jesus. He decides that. And one of the things is he makes us holy and blameless. So one of the blessings of being in Christ is that I'm chosen for a purpose. That's wonderful. There's something about being chosen that the human heart longs for. Something about being wanted, wanting approval. It's written in the DNA of every human being. There is every human being has varying degrees of wanting to be chosen, wanting to be wanted and accepted and approved. We want to, we want essentially what God gives for free. We're made, we're wired to want what God gives us so that we're satisfied by him. And in this dimension, we are chosen and that satisfies my need to be wanted. Some of you, like me, you live your whole life waiting, wanting to be accepted by so many people. Just waiting to be accepted by a group of people. It started with your friends at the playground when you were six. It moved on to kids in school and grade school. It moved on to doing you know, drugs with the high schoolers who you really wanted to get in with. And it moved on to partying in college. And then it moved on to, you know, in the workplace, I'll compromise some values. And you, you just continue to find yourself wanting the approval of whatever group of people you find yourself around or whatever, you know, group of people you really want in with. The funny thing is no one else's choice no one else's approval of me matters when it's all said and done. Pause. We're going to die. We're going to stand before God. We're going to be judged for the life we lived and what we did with the gospel, whether you believed or not. And when you're standing before the Almighty Judge, you're not thinking of anyone else's opinion. You're not thinking about whether or not anyone chose you on earth and what friends rejected you. I think the only thing you're going to be concerned with, and I can speak purely from speculation, of course, I don't know, but it seems as though we're going to care only, not mostly, only about what the Father says. What does God say about me when it's all said and done? That should be what drives your life. And guess what? You don't need to wonder. If you're a believer, you don't need to wonder, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? He's made his declaration and it's right here. I've chosen you. I want you. This, this is the Lord speaking. I approve of you. I accept you in my son. You take refuge in my son. Oh, you're mine. I accept you. I, I approve of you. You're righteous. In fact, I'll choose you to be holy and blameless before me so that when we stand before the living God, I don't need to wonder if my sin's going to stain me. I'm cleansed. Holy and blameless is a position, but it's also a lifestyle. Like I'm made holy. Holy, set apart, cleansed of sin, set apart for a specific use that God decides. Blameless, without blame. You can't blame or accuse me of sin. Now, I genuinely have sinned. That, that's not something you can you know, dispute. I have sinned. But you can't accuse me and hold that against me because the judge has spoken a better final word. And he says, you are blameless. From the mouth of God, he declares, you are are without blame. You, I will not accuse you or hold your sin against you. You are holy before me. 
That's what God chooses you for. There are other things. But this is what Paul wants to start with. We're blessed in Christ. How? By being chosen to be holy and blameless before the living God. I don't have to wonder, God, how do you see me? He says, I see you as my son. I see you through the lens of Jesus. You're holy and blameless as he is because you've taken refuge in him and he's covered you with his holiness. This is what Christ has done for us. In love, God predestined us for adoption. Oh, there's that predestined word again, brother. You better watch out. I am watching out. He predestined those who would trust in Christ to be adopted. He didn't decide which of you would end up in Christ. He decides what will happen to you whether or not you're in Christ. Two categories of people. You're in Christ or you're not. God deals with each category according to what he's predestined. What has he predestined those who are in Christ for? Well, he's predestined us to be adopted to himself. Here comes some more idea. I didn't finish this chosen thought. Let me go back real quick. I'm just circling back around going, oh, no, I can't, I can't. I've got to go back to this. When you get chosen for something, there's something that leaps inside of you to, to, to be wanted. Now, it matters who's choosing you and who's the one you know, behind it and what they're choosing you for. No one wants to be chosen by the janitor to clean the puke off the floor. No one wants to be chosen to, to clean the diary and the toilets. I know it got weird for a minute, but there's some things you don't want to be chosen for. So being chosen in and of itself is, is not a, just a good thing always. But if God is the one choosing me to be accepted into his kingdom, I want that. Sign me up. And the cool thing is God's choice uh, voids everyone else's rejection of you. In other words, since God has spoken, okay, since God has spoken um, a better word over you, he says, I choose you for my family. That choice overrides anyone else's rejection of you. Okay? In other words, as you go through life and you do get rejected, it's the beautiful, humbling thing about life. Is I'm going to get rejected. Not everyone's going to like me. Not everyone's going to have a legitimate reason to not like me. Some people are going to hate me just because they hate me. When that happens, there's someone who is more powerful. There's someone who's stronger, who actually gives them life. And he has spoken a better word over me. He says, I choose you. I want you. I've, you know, invited you into my family. And I go, I'm chosen by God. I don't care about your opinions. You see how being chosen by God removes this fear of man, removes this desire to be wanted and please people, to be accepted. It removes that. It, it wipes it off the heart. So I don't need to be wanted by you. I could not care less if you approve of me. I couldn't care less because of who has chosen me. And his opinion matters most because he speaks an eternal word over me. Your word about me is temporary. And it's probably flawed. And it's probably, you know, rooted in a misunderstanding. But God actually knows me to the core better than I do. And he chooses me despite that. Even though he knows me perfectly, every flaw, every weakness, every sin, every time I'll reject him with my life, he still chooses me. Now, you and I get rejected and chosen by people in this life, usually with a 
you know, an incomplete understanding of who I am. You know, people are quick to accept people based off their gifting and, and how cool they are and what they have to offer. And they don't even care about the character. Some people reject, you know, others based off of a complete misconception. God goes, I know you fully, entirely, completely. I, I know you better than you know you. And I choose you to be holy and blameless. Now, let's stop and say God knows every single moment from here on out we're all sin against him and go back to something I promised I'd stop doing. He knows every moment in the future and even now where I'll treat people poorly and not represent him well. He knows every moment that I'll fall short. And even back then, when I gave my life to Christ at 21, in that moment, God knowing all of that lined up, every single sin I'd ever commit, he goes, I am still gonna make you holy. I'm still gonna make you blameless. God's decision to accept us is not based on anything we do or don't do in the future. It's based on His grace and the work of Jesus, which doesn't excuse sin. It's not the point. If you know me by now, you know I have to insert that. People will take that too far. But I am holy and blameless. God has declared it. Even knowing, let's, let's think of it like this. My kids are like yelling in the back. If I become your friend, extend the hand of friendship to you and bring you into my home, let you into my inner circle. We get to know each other. We're best friends. In the future, you're actually going to wrong me. And not like a small wrong. Like you're going to violate a breach. Uh, have, there's going to be a huge breach of trust. Uh, a huge breach of trust. I go, something like I can't even imagine. It's like I would never see you doing that, man. Let's say you're going to do that. If I knew that ahead of time, I don't know, honestly, if I would still choose you to be my friend. I would rather avoid that and go and invest my life and friendship into someone who won't retaliate with harm and, and hurt me. God, however, knows those who have faith in his son will mess up in the future. And those and his knowledge of that doesn't change whether or not he's going to choose us. It doesn't change it. He goes, I know. And I'm still going to make you holy and blameless nonetheless. That's an incredible choice. That's incredible. That's what makes his, his decision to invite us and choose us to be holy and blameless. That's what makes it all the more profound. Is that he has a complete knowledge of what will be and what I'll do. And it's not held against me. God doesn't go, hey, in the future, you're going you're gonna to mess up pretty bad. I don't know if I'm going to choose you to be holy and blameless. It seems like a waste of time. God doesn't do that. If you have faith in my son and trust in the gospel and take refuge in Christ as the only Messiah who atones for your sins, you're holy and blameless, period. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In other words, uh, this word can actually be translated pleasure, the pleasure of his will. It was God's good pleasure to adopt those who would come to Christ in faith. God predestined that, right? Yeah, predestined is a heavy word. He predetermined, he determined ahead of time, anyone who would have faith in my son, God goes, because I love humanity, I'm going to adopt the one who has faith. I'm going to adopt them into my family. It's my good pleasure to do so. That's what God says. 
right there. He predestined us for adoption. Now, Romans tells us that we're actually eagerly waiting for the adoption to be completed. Not like it's not legally finished or legally declared. It's done. But like 1 John 3 or 4 teaches, the world doesn't know us as we are. But I still am a child of God. I have yet to be revealed in full glory to the world as a child of God. But I will one day. And Romans 8 talks about how we're eagerly waiting for, and creation is eagerly waiting for, the revelation of the children of God in the glory of Christ that we've inherited to be revealed as what we are right now. Like right now, who we really are in Christ, it's veiled by this body. It's veiled. Not entirely. You get glimpses of who I am in Christ, but the fullness of who God has made us to be in Jesus, that's veiled by flesh. Once this flesh is removed and we're resurrected to glorified bodies, the adoption will be completely manifest. Not completed in a legal sense, but realized in an experiential sense. So in love, this is what God does. He goes, you trust in my son. You are adopted into my family. God doesn't make you a maidservant. He doesn't make you a, a janitor in his, his bathroom. You know, in, you know, there's no bathroom in heaven, but you know, the point still stands. God doesn't make you uh, the, the least in the kingdom of heaven in terms of like, you get the lowest position, sucker. He goes, I'm going to make you what my son is to me. A beloved child. A beloved child. Not like, I tolerate you. Like sometimes I look at my kids and I'm like, like right now, I'm just tolerating you. Other moments, I'm like, I'm, I love you so much. And I'm just like, I love everything you are. In this moment, like I love you, but I'm just kind of waiting for a nap. I'm just tolerating you. That's not God with us. He predestines us for adoption to himself. He goes, I want you and my family. I want you and my family. That, that should blow you away. That should blow you away. That the infinite, eternal God of the heavens extends the hand of friendship to the degree that you become his child legally. Jesus signs our adoption papers by his blood so that we can come into his family through Christ. And God's good pleasure was to do that. He wanted it so badly that Jesus said, I'll go and make a way for it. Like, do you get that? God loves us that much. He, prede he predestines us for adoption. So that's part of the blessing, is that I'm in the family of God. You know, in our, even in our culture, I'm working with Western culture here, uh, the family you belong to can be a source of pride. Who your parents are, what they've achieved, the name you hold, your last name, that can be a sense of pride. That can give you a sense of confidence. Or it could be a reason for shame based on what your family has done and what they're known for and your parents' track record and, you know, uh, you know your tendency to just uh, live in a junky house and they don't know how to deal with money. And it can be like, I don't really, I'm not proud of this name, but I have it. So, But to bear the name of God as his son or daughter, that's incredible. That's incredible. There's a source of confidence right there. Who my father is. Not just my God and my creator and my judge. My father is the judge of all things. My father 
is the one who spoke things into existence. My father is the one who's making you alive right now and giving you breath. And my father's doing that. What a sense of identity that that fills a person with. What a sense of confidence and self-esteem. To go, I am someone who belongs to the father of lights. You are. And it was his pleasure to do so. It was his will. He wanted to. That's one of your blessings, his adoption. And being holy and blameless. Which should lead to a life of holiness. As children of God, you expect a person to live a certain way. Right? There's a certain way of life that is attached to certain names. Like um, NBA superstars, once they have kids, you just naturally assume basketball when you hear the name. And even as the kids move forward, and they're like, I have nothing to do with basketball. There's a, you expect them to think of and see basketball a certain way because of their parents or because of who, they're, who they belong to. Or, uh, for some reason, I keep thinking of um, Avatar Less Airbender. Toph Beifong. I just keep thinking of the, the family name she bears. And everywhere she goes, she gets to pull this card and just to get some wonderful benefits wherever she finds herself because of the name she bears. It like, gives her access to things. And it's a source of sometimes she's not too proud of it. Other times she's really proud. And she can use that name to her advantage. You, you and I... Like there's a certain way of life that is attached to the name we bear. It's reasonable. It's appropriate. Um, for instance, the basketball analogy garbage. Forget that I said that. Let's say you're a pastor's kid. You're a pastor's kid. As a child of a, of a holy man, a minister of the Lord, you expect the kid to live a little more holy, a little more godly than the rest of the kids. Now, you don't intentionally do that. It's just what comes attached to the package. You expect their father or their mother's a minister. You expect them to live a certain way because of the family they belong to. It's the same with God. If I am holy and blameless, if I am adopted, if I am chosen, if I am blessed, there's a certain way I should live. There's an expected standard on my life. That I should be held to. Now let's read verse 6. To the praise of God's glorious grace. Let's continue that thought. In love, God predestined us for adoption, right, through Christ, to the praise of His grace. So when, when God adopts a person, it magnifies His grace. It should point people to the greatness of His grace and love. It's an, it should lead people to praise God more. The act of adoption should result in God getting more glory. So as people being adopted, we become objects that reflect the glory of God back to him through us being adopted. Not objectifying you as a person, but you know what I mean. We're objects of, of God's praise. Not to receive that, but to reflect that. To reflect that back to him. Through our adoption, that God has blessed us in the beloved. Now, obviously, Paul's referring to Jesus here. Because the beloved is a term that you'll see quite a bit in Scripture. And you wonder, when Paul's talking about adoption and being loved by God, why does he refer to Jesus as the beloved? 
up to this point, he said in him, for him, in Christ. But now he shifts gears and he goes, he's blessed us with his grace and his glory and his adoption in the beloved. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate beloved of the Father. We see this at the baptism of Jesus. We see this at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. Not just loved. The word beloved carries a different dimension of love that's worth noting. Let me take you to Ephesians 1.6 in the Greek. We'll look at this word real quick. Okay. Now, Paul could have said, the one loved by God, that wouldn't carry the punch that beloved does. Okay. It's a preferential kind of love. It's like this, um, I wouldn't say obsessive love. That, that would demean God a bit. This doesn't even give me the definition I was hoping for. Let's just say like this. The love the Father has for the Son. The unique acceptance the Father has of the Son. The unique relationship that the Father and Son have shared throughout all eternity. Before the beginning of time. That is essentially what we're, what we're swept up into. And we become recipients of that same love, that beloved kind of, I so cherish you. I cherish my beloved son. That becomes applicable to us. I become one who is cherished, beloved, deeply, deeply loved and appreciated by the Father to the degree that we're going to see that there's an inheritance in the saints. Like God looks at his people and says, this is my inheritance. This is what I desire. This is what I want. He finds value in us. The way that the father has loved and treated the son for all eternity, that becomes true of us. We're not on the outskirts going, I wish I could be loved like that. The father goes, oh, I love you like that. I love you the way I love my beloved son. You are my beloved. And that love towards us, the way God blesses us and treats us, it's to the praise of his grace. As a believer, I should be a walking reason people praise God. That's part of my calling. That's part of my identity, is that I have been made to be an object through which God's praise is, is given. When people look at my life, it's a cause for worship. When people see my life, it should be a cause for praise. They should be pointed to him and his grace should be magnified, right? That's part of my identity. God doesn't just do this to us and for us because we're amazing. That's not why he does these things. God treats us this way because he loves us, despite our sin, not because of our awesomeness, and to glorify his greatness. I'm a walking reason God is glorified. That's, in, that's insane. And he's blessed us in the beloved. That's the title for Christ that is unique to him. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he 
grants it to us. He grants it to us. That's crazy. Why would you ever want to be anything other than what God declares you to be? Why would you ever give weight to what other people say about you when this is just too good? This should be your focus, what God declares about you. This should be like what you meditate on day and night is who God has made you to be, what he's done for you, who he is, and what God does for us and what God declares us to be actually reveals his character and nature to us. There's so many dimensions of, you know, God's character being revealed in the way that he treats his children. So, verse 7, in Jesus we have redemption. We have redemption. I am someone who is redeemed and purchased. There was a transaction that took place at the cross. When Jesus died, he died as the sin of the world, right? He became sin who knew no sin. And then he resurrects in the power of God as the perfect resurrected human we all failed to be and could never be. And that transaction allows us to have his light and his life because he took our death and he took our darkness and he took our sin. He took our separation and our imperfection. We get his perfection. He has purchased us, our redeemer, our redeemer. Through his blood, there is no redemption. There is no bring, being brought back to the Father without the blood of Jesus being shed. Hebrews talks a lot about the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrifices. They're not enough. They could never bring you into the presence of God. Jesus has. Redemption is another blessing we have. Redemption. Let's see what passages they link here. Redemption in Christ, Romans 3.24. You are in Christ, who became to us wisdom and righteousness and redemption. Let's just look at this word redemption. It's to redeem. Think of Naomi or Ruth, the book of Ruth. When Boaz does this whole redemption thing, it's a release a release of ransom by, by affected payment. A release, a deliverance. You know, God redeemed and delivered his people out of Egypt. Remember that? There was a ransom paid in terms of the firstborn and all that that went into that. It's a purchasing. Either way, there's a, there's a payment on the part of God. Payment on the part of God to rescue or deliver us the way Egypt or the way Israel was delivered, rescued, redeemed out of Egypt. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass. Now, redemption might be another way, at least in Paul's usage of redemption here, the redemption that comes through the blood of Jesus, right? Another way of saying it might be, I'm forgiven of my sin. I'm forgiven of my sin. Trespasses is the word here used. Now, trespasses is a little different than just your typical sin. Um, I think trespass has to do with force. Sidestep unintentional error or willful transgression. I think 
correct me if I'm wrong, I think the trespasses here has more of a willful intent attached to it. It's not, oops, I didn't oopsie, I didn't know it was an accident. No, it's, I know what God says to do and I didn't do it. Or I know he says I shouldn't do this and I do it anyway. It's this willful kind of rebellious, I'm going to do it because I really want pleasure or I really want happiness temporarily or I really want whatever this will promise me. And there's forgiveness attached to the blood ransom that Jesus offers. Forgiveness is packaged in the blessings according to the riches of his grace. Now, forgiveness here, we could spend days unpacking. Either way, just think of it like this. God looks upon us and says, I forgive you of all your crimes. Past, present, future, I forgive you. And you go, why? What did I do? He goes, it's not what you did. It's not what you did. It's because I'm gracious and my son made way for this forgiveness. And you go, well, why is it applied to me? He goes, well, because you trusted in my son to forgive you, right? You took me at my word. You believed that I was true. You claimed my promise. You took refuge in Christ. He made way for your forgiveness. And it's according to the riches of his grace. Now, the riches of God's grace, one might say, is endless, limitless, infinite. If you're going to limit the riches of God's grace, you got an issue in your theology. Biblically, the riches of God's grace, whenever that idea is communicated, refers to God's grace being limitless in terms of those who would come under and receive the free gift of that grace. And if the forgiveness is dependent on His grace, then however far His grace goes, that's how far the forgiveness goes. And if that's how far the forgiveness goes, and my sin only goes so far, because I don't sin infinitely, right? My sin has a limited amount. Then the forgiveness and the grace God gives me is way more than the sin I'll commit. This is the idea here. God covers past, present, future sins because he is so rich in grace. It's rich in grace, which he lavished. And you got to notice this grace that God is rich in is the foundation of all that we are in Christ, all that we are in Jesus. And this grace he lavished upon us. Not only is this grace uh, the driving force behind his decisions, this grace actually is poured out onto us. Like if you took a bucket of water, and you filled it with God's grace, poured out onto us. It'd have to be a limitless bucket, of course, but the point is we're covered from head to toe for all eternity in the favor and the kindness of God. And we have blessings, good things we don't deserve. And the way God lavished us is not recklessly, as some songs want you to believe. It's not, you know, thoughtlessly, carelessly, out of control, he lavishes his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. Meaning, there's a lot of wisdom and insight that went into God's activity towards a believer. When God goes, all the things I'm going to do towards a believer, there's wisdom and intentional insight in that. God doesn't just recklessly be like, let's forgive them. Let's give them grace. Let's choose them. 
Let's do all this stuff. God goes, he is he, calculated. That's a better word. It's wise. It's insightful. It's prophetic. It's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. It's Christ-centered. It's glorifying His grace. There's intentionality and mystery even behind the ways God treats His people. So verse 9, it says, making known to us the mystery of His will. What is one of the ways God lavishes His grace on His people? He makes known His mystery to us. The will that was a secret for a while. Making known to us the mystery of His will. You know, there's a mystery called the gospel. Colossians says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is Christ revealed to the Gentiles and the Jews as one body. The body of Christ through the death and resurrection of Christ. Jew and Gentile are one body. That's the mystery. And then we're filled with the Spirit. And the mystery, which is God's will, was made known to us according to His purpose, which He accomplished, set forth, realized in Christ. So the mystery has been realized in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him things in heaven and things on earth. Now, I think there's two things to understand here. The purpose of God has been fulfilled in Christ. But there's a dimension of that purpose that has yet to be fully realized until the second coming of Jesus. And that full realization doesn't make this any less true. You know, just because we're waiting for the fuller sense of this doesn't mean this is less true now. No, this is finished. Like, this is done. In the mind of God, through Christ and His finished work, heaven and earth are already, like, it's so guaranteed you can speak it as if it's already finished. Heaven and earth are going to be united in Christ. But it starts with, watch this, the plan, the mystery that Paul's going to unpack in chapter 2. The mystery is that Jew and Gentile become one new man in Christ. Jesus, who is of the heavens, us, Jew and Gentile, who are of the earth, heaven and earth are united in the person of Jesus to make up the body. So, as believers, part of our identity is that we are actually the first of new creation. Not outwardly with our bodies, but internally. Like Paul says, look, our body's wasting away, but our soul, our inner man, is being renewed day by day. That inner us that is the most real us, the, the realest version of you in Christ. That's a combination of heaven and earth. We who are of the dust have been united with Jesus who is of the heavens and his spirit lives within us. So there were this unique combination of heaven and earth until we get a glorified body that matches our spirit in the new heavens and the new earth. And the plan is that in Jesus, through his perfect atoning work, Heaven and earth are going to be recreated into one new heavens and new earth. And on that new earth, new heavens, Jesus is going to reign with his people. And we're like the first of that. We're like the, Jesus is the, the very first, but we follow in his footsteps as the first set of new creation. We're like the first step towards that. It's really cool. And you're going to see this unification of heaven and earth, this language of unification later in coming chapters. Let's get to verse 11. In Jesus, 
We've obtained an inheritance. There's an inheritance waiting for you guys in heaven that you can't even fathom. You can't even understand what is waiting for us. Now, that inheritance doesn't become ours. It says we have obtained it. Jesus won it. He conquered death. He made way for that. He paid for it with his blood. And he extends it to you. He does the work. You enjoy the fruit of his labor. He does all the heavy lifting. You enjoy the rewards of his victory. That's crazy. And you might say all that Christ has won through his death and resurrection and his perfect life, that what he's won back for us, again, is more than what Adam and Eve lost in the garden originally. And you can package all this, all the rewards of Christ in what you might call the inheritance of the saints. And it says we've obtained that. So though I don't yet see it, and it is coming, it is still mine right now. My name's on it. Your name's on it. The names of the saints are on the inheritance of Christ. And he extends it to us and says, come and share in my inheritance. Why would I want anything else on this planet? Why would I want anything else? Why would I settle for anything less than the divine inheritance of Jesus that he extends to us? Why would I want anything else? I, I really, we really lack nothing. Like we really are not wanting anything else. We're not waiting for anything else. We lack nothing. There's an inheritance that has our name on it. Things you and I can't even fathom. And I think the parable of the talents gives us a, a dimension of what that inheritance looks like. It looks like reigning. It looks like being entrusted rule and authority to use honorably for the glory of God, of course, but this inheritance could be, could be a series all on its own, okay? But the point is it's ours, and we've been predestined according to the, His purpose, the pleasure of God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. There's nothing God does that's accidental. Everything is perfectly calculated. The one who has divine wisdom and omniscience, He sees all things unfolded, and He makes the perfect, perfect plan to incorporate all of humanity's dumb decisions and smart decisions. He wins. His plan will not be stopped. His purpose will be accomplished. And this is his will, that we're invited into that. You and I actually play a role in God's plan to unite all things in Christ. We play a role in that. What a cosmic plan to be a part of. What an honor. What an honor to say, I play a, a role in God uniting heaven and earth in Jesus. I, have a, I participate in that. God's going to use me to do certain dimensions of that that'll make way for that full plan to be realized. I'm a part of that. You can't miss this. You have such a crucial role. Regardless of your gifts and your experiences and your education and where you think you are in life, you have a role to play. And you need to get in the game. Verse 12 says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Now the we here, people argue, they say, well, Paul's just talking about him and the apostles who were the first, essentially, laid the foundation of the church. You can go that route. I would just like to say that we, he's referring to like the first of the believers, the first century church. We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So apparently, all you have to do 
to be included in this incredible life and blessing and relationship and incredible reality. All you have to do is hope in Christ. That's the way into the kingdom is by faith. Now, faith and hope aren't synonymous, but the dimension of hope here, I think, emphasizes faith. We were, for the, were the first to hope in Christ. Might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, which resulted in that hope, in the moment you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I love the language Paul uses. The Spirit of God was not some change in God's plan. Hey, I think we should send our, our presence into these people. Great idea. Why didn't we think of that thousands of years ago? The plan has always been to unite heaven and earth in the person of Christ and in the people of God. How does God do that? Well, he promised in the scriptures beforehand that the Spirit of God would come. The Spirit of God would be poured out, like we see in Acts, in Joel, and when you know, Moses is talking to the people in the camp who are the leaders, who are experiencing a temporary filling of the Spirit. And Joshua goes, hey, we should stop this. Moses goes, man, oh, that all of God's people would be filled with the Spirit. This has been promised, and we are sealed. We're sealed. That language there indicates to me, let me read it all the way through. When you believed. The language is pretty clear, right? When you believed, because you heard the word of truth, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the third person in the Trinity. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he's the guarantee of our inheritance. The inheritance that you don't fully see yet, but you experience partially, that's in heaven. Yeah, he's guaranteeing that you're going to get that. Not only is the Spirit of God promised, but what he promises and testifies to is the inheritance that's promised until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Notice this phrase, to the praise of his glory, the praise of his glory, the praise of his glory. It's used so much in Ephesians 1. The point is, all that God has done for his church, all that God has accomplished for his people, and for the world for that matter, but everything we get in Christ, it is to the praise and to the worship of God. Everything God does for us, it should lead us to praise and worship him all the more. And it should lead others to see our life and fall on their face and give him praise. His grace should be praised because of my life. Now, back to the Spirit of God sealing a Christian. I've done an episode on eternal security. Okay? And I've used this verse alongside many others. I'll link that in the description below later. But for now, you might want to go check that out on my YouTube channel. What I see this as is, look, if you get sealed by the promised Holy Spirit the minute you believe, who guarantees your inheritance until we acquire possession of it, it's a guarantee, it's promised, it's coming, then if there was any way to frustrate that and walk away from that and reject that once you're in Christ, then the guarantee and the promise seems to be null and void, and the inheritance can't be guaranteed. There should be stipulations. There would be conditions attached to that. Well, the Spirit of God guarantees our inheritance if there's no if. It's the Spirit of God guarantees. If you see the Spirit of God within you, 
he is testifying of the inheritance that is most definitely going to be yours. He's guaranteeing it until you acquire possession of it. Until. Meaning, you will. You're a believer. You're going to get the inheritance. But if you could walk away from your salvation and reject it, is that true? Wouldn't there be stipulations? Well, if you believe and continue believing, if you, if you don't sin enough, if you don't walk away, you know, it says, look, if you're filled with the Spirit, the minute you believe, He's the guarantee of our inheritance. God's guaranteeing it. You get to argue with God if you disbelieve that. I won't spend time trying to convince you. I'll let the Word of God do its work in you. But I will say some pretty strong language to support eternal security, don't you think? Don't you think? Think about it. Well, guys, we're going to jump on a Zoom call in about five minutes. We have a Zoom prayer room call. If you guys need prayer, you guys want godly fellowship, you don't have to turn on your camera, turn on your mic. You can be a fly on the wall. Um, we're going to talk through this and ask some questions, have some good fellowship and discussion and prayer time. Um, we are also going to, I think that's it actually. What I want you guys to do is if you're new here, visit AboveReproachMinistry.com. This is my full-time job to support my wife and two kids. So if you would like to visit the website, you can find our YouTube channel, our podcast, um, my book that I've written called Fruitful, our free Bible study program called Bible Workouts. Um, you can find uh, the Discord community. If you haven't joined the Discord, get on it. Hit me up on Instagram. Uh, you can support this ministry one time through Cash App, PayPal, or Venmo. Or if you've really benefited and you want to become a monthly supporter, um, you get exclusive access and benefits. Uh, the Zoom info is if you click my TikTok profile picture, click it, and then you'll see a link. Click the Zoom link, and the password is Jesus. It's that simple. Very simple. Go to my profile, click the link, the Zoom link is there, and click it. Password is Jesus. Okay? And if you're watching this in the future on YouTube, I apologize. This already happened. But maybe there's another one in your future. Ooh. All right. God bless you guys. Keep moving towards Jesus. And I'll see you guys in the Zoom call in about three minutes. All right. Bye, guys.